when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And God give us ears to hear his word. The ancient Germans called him Mephistopheles. In Buddhism, his name is Ma'ara. Mandaeans call him the Lord of Darkness. Zoroastrians call him Aharaman. The ancient Egyptians called him Set. In ancient British mythology, his name is Baphomet. In Islam, his name is Shaitan. Who am I talking about? Obviously, Satan, the devil. It actually surprised me to learn as I was preparing this sermon that the vast majority of world religions and cultures, both today and throughout world history, have believed in some conception of the devil. Now, when I say that, don't hear me at all saying that the majority of the world religions have got it right. Uh, no, I think they're fundamentally wrong. Biblical Christianity is the only true religion, and all others are imposters. They're idolatries. But even a broken clock is right twice a day. And these other religions that have some conception of the devil, they're certainly onto something true. And I think the reason for this is because true evil is so powerful. True evil is so destructive and insidious that common sense tells us that it can't be uh, just this sort of accidental thing. It can't be some impersonal force. Uh, you know, you think about something like the evil driving the Holocaust. That can't just be mistakes made by good-intentioned people. No, there's, there must be some evil mastermind behind it all, some intelligent mind coordinating evil. And I believe this is why the majority of people around the world, including Christians, have believed in some sort of understanding of the devil. Now, the Bible obviously has a lot to say about the devil. The devil appears over 100 times in Scripture. He's mentioned in every single book of the New Testament, and his work is on basically every page. Jesus talked about the devil 25 times, and he's known in Scripture by a variety of titles. Satan, the evil one, Beelzebub, and the father lies. Suffice it to say, you need to deny the inspiration of the Bible to deny the existence of Satan. But the funny thing is, most people are very confused about what the devil does. And this includes good Bible-believing Christians. There's enormous confusion over the activities and purposes of Satan. Uh, many ignore him completely, almost acting as if he doesn't exist. Others blame every conceivable problem on him. You got a headache, you got a backache, your smartphone won't work, must be the devil. Still others relegate his work exclusively to kind of the occult realm. Yeah, seances and fortune tellers contacting the dead, that sort of thing. Not realizing that the Bible teaches that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Well, in the passage we're going to be studying this morning... Revelation 12, 1 through 6, we're given a glimpse into Satan's main mission. This is the job he's about. Just like Jesus had a mission to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, so also Satan has a main mission. And understanding this mission, it'll make all the difference in how we understand what's going on in our world and our role in that. Well, in studying Revelation 12, 1 through 6, I'd like us to ask three questions of this passage. Three questions that'll hopefully help us understand what it means and how it relates to our lives today. Three questions. Number one, who are the characters seen in this vision? This very fantastic vision we just read, who are the main characters here? 
Now, as we just read that vision, you may have been shocked by the scene portrayed here. It's like nothing else in all the Bible. First, we have a glorious woman, almost portrayed like a queen. She's standing on the moon. Her clothing is like the sun. She's got this crown of 12 stars. And as you saw, this woman is pregnant, very pregnant, about to give birth. Now, as if that weren't strange enough, before this woman stands a dragon, a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And he's there almost catching the baby. If any of you have been there in the delivery room when your wife or sister or something like that was going to have a baby, you'll remember the doctor standing right there ready to catch the baby. Realize that in this scene, the dragon is doing that, about to catch this baby. And as you can see, he wants to eat the baby, which is a pretty shocking, disgusting scene if you think about it. But lo and behold, the baby is born, but before the dragon can eat the baby, the baby is caught up to heaven where he's kept safe at the throne of God. Now what in the world is this all about? Well, before we explain the meaning of this vision, we need to emphasize how incredibly important it is to get the identity of each of these characters right. If you get one of the identities wrong, you'll mis misunderstand the entire vision and really much of the book of Revelation. Harry Ironside, who was a great scholar of the book of Revelation, said this about these characters. He said, I think I may say, without exaggeration, that I have read or carefully examined several hundred books purporting to expound the Revelation. I have learned to look upon this 12th chapter as the crucial text regarding the correct prophecy outline. If the interpreters are wrong as to the woman and the man-child, it necessarily follows that they will be wrong as to many things connected with them. So who are these characters? There are three main characters, and we're going to start with the easy ones. First, let's talk about the man-child or the baby. Who is that in verse 5? She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Well, this is obviously talking about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the main character, the hero of the entire book of Revelation. He is the king who will one day rule all nations with the rod of iron. Describing Jesus' second coming, Revelation 19.15 says this, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The same Jesus born of the Virgin Mary, the same Jesus who is fully God and fully man, the same Jesus who is tempted in all ways like we are yet without sin, the same Jesus who died on the cross paying for our sins and was raised again victorious, the same Jesus who is going to come again, to judge the living and the dead, and to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He's the baby born in this passage that the dragon wants to eat. Well, let's talk about the other obvious character. Who's the dragon? Well, in a way, identifying the dragon is easy because verse 9 tells us exactly who he is. If you glance down to Revelation 12, 9, we read this. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is the dragon, Satan, the devil, the evil one, the one who was created as some sort of glorious archangel, the one who rebelled and fell away because of his pride, the one who tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and in getting them to sin, he became the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. He is the one waiting there to catch the baby so that he can eat the baby. Notice how this dragon is described. He's red. That's probably referring to his rage and wrath. He's got seven heads, which is likely a reference to the seven kingdoms in Daniel 2. On these seven heads are seven diadems. Now, these are not the victor's crowns that are given to 
faithful believers. The Bible often talks about crowns given to believers. That's a different word. Those were the kind of the victory wreaths given in, say, the Olympics when you win a competition. These are different crowns. These are diadems which were given to authorities. And that seems to be the case because Satan, he's given power and authority, but he never actually wins any victories. He's got these ten horns, which might refer to the ten Roman emperors, but truth be told, a lot of that speculation. So we've got Jesus, the baby, we've got the devil, who's the dragon, but there's one final character here, and she's the controversial one. The woman. Who is this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars? Well, throughout history, there have been many, many ideas put forth as to who this woman is. Interestingly, many cults view their cult leader as this woman. For instance, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, she claimed that she was the woman in Revelation 12 and that the dragon was modern medicine. But since that is so clearly unbiblical, we'll just ignore that for the sake of time and keep moving. The Roman Catholic Church has claimed that this woman is the Virgin Mary, and sometimes you'll see statues of the Virgin Mary portrayed this way, with a crown of 12 stars standing on the moon, that sort of thing. Ever seen that? Now, initially, it might make sense to see this as the Virgin Mary. Obviously, she did give birth to the baby Jesus. But it just doesn't work with the rest of the passage to claim that this is the Virgin Mary. Look, for instance, at verse 6 and ask yourself, when did anything like this happen in the life of the Virgin Mary? A woman fled into the wilderness, where she is a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. When, when did anything like that happen in the Virgin Mary's life? Or again, verse 15. The serpent poured water like a flood out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Again, you'd be very hard-pressed to find anything like that ever happening in the life of the Virgin Mary. It just doesn't work. So while, yes, the Virgin Mary was the biological mother of Jesus, and we honor her for that, she just cannot be the woman here in Revelation 12. Well, another view claims the woman here is the church. The church. And again, that's one of those views that sounds good at first, but just doesn't make sense as you keep going. First, the New Testament clearly views the church as a new project that began on the day of Pentecost. While, yes, everybody in the Old Testament who was saved was saved by grace alone through faith alone, and people like Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, we can look at them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Using careful New Testament terminology, it's pretty clear that something new is beginning in the church age, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, this church that Jesus said he would build, this church that is the body of Christ, this church in which Jew and Gentile have equal heir, equal rights to God, that's something new that begins after Pentecost. Just like Ephesians 3, 4 says, The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, again, all Old Testament saints are always and only saved by grace alone through faith alone. There is something new going on in the New Testament with the church age, if we're going to use New Testament terminology carefully. Therefore, this woman, whoever she is, it can't be the church. Well, the final view, and the view that makes the most sense to me, is that this woman is the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people. And this is actually what the rest of the New Testament emphasizes, that it's through Israel that the Messiah comes into the world. For example, in Romans 9, 4, we read this. They are Israelites, 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What's more, this view that the woman is the people of Israel, it makes sense of the imagery there in verse 1. Now look at the imagery there in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, if this is the Virgin Mary, what in the world is that talking about? Or if this is even the church, what is that talking about? It doesn't make any sense. But this does make sense if you remember your Old Testament. Uh, can you remember maybe a young man's dream in the Old Testament where he dreamt about a moon and the stars and, and the sun? Ringing any bells? Listen to Genesis 37, 9. This is one of Joseph's dreams that he shared with his brothers. Joseph dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Same imagery, sun, moon, and there are eleven stars, but if you add in Joseph, that's twelve stars, which are probably representative of the twelve tribes of Israel, and it's clearly talking about the people of Israel. So to me, this makes the best sense of what's going on here. The characters are the baby, Jesus, the dragon, the devil, and the woman is Israel, the channel through whom Messiah comes into the world. Let's move on to our second question. What does this vision mean? What's the point of all of this? Now, since we've identified who these different characters are, let's start walking through the passage and see if we can make sense of it. Begin in verse 1. John writes, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. Now, if this woman is Israel, and if the baby to be born is the Messiah, then if you look at verse 2, that's essentially the entirety of the Old Testament. This is that Old Testament hope, that Old Testament longing for the Messiah. From that first promise in Genesis 3.15 that God would send one to crush the serpent's head, to the covenant promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the promise in Deuteronomy 18 of a prophet greater than Moses, to the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that King David would have a descendant who would rule the world forever, to all that's in the major and the minor prophets about the Messiah's kingdom, all of that and so much more is this woman crying out in birth pangs and in the agony of giving birth. Israel knows the Messiah is coming, she's longing for a Messiah, and she can't wait for that Messiah to enter the world. You see? Let's keep going. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, running in parallel with Israel's longing for a Messiah is Satan and his work to thwart God's plan of redemption. Now, you look at verse 4, it says, His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. Most commentators see that, and I think they're probably right, as a reference to how when Satan fell, he took about a third of the angels with him. Just to remind you, Satan was originally created to be a good, holy angel, but again, through pride, he fell away, became an evil angel. When that happened, apparently, he somehow persuaded a third of the angels to go with him. They became demons. Now, according to Revelation 5.11, there are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of good, holy angels. If we take that even close to literal, that means there are multiple millions, if not billions, of good holy angels. If that represents two-thirds of the original number, 
That means there are millions and millions and millions of demons filling this world, working for the devil. That's why Martin Luther, we just sang this in a mighty fortress, this world with devils filled. Makes sense. Let's keep going, verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now here we're given a glimpse into Satan's main mission in our world. Satan's main mission is it's not to cause tables to levitate or walls to bleed. His main mission is not to cause people to puke, vomit, and you know, cause your smartphone to freak out. No, his main mission is to stop Jesus and to stop the work of redemption. That's his number one priority. Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but the child was caught up to God and to his throne. As I was thinking about this passage, it struck me that this would actually make a very appropriate Christmas sermon. It would be a very weird Christmas sermon, but it would make a very appropriate Christmas sermon nonetheless. We usually think of Christmas as this very warm, nice, cozy time. You know, you got little Virgin Mary there in the manger. Around her are sheep and oxen and donkeys and goats and pigs and ducks and, you know, all sorts of animals. Everything's calm and quiet, silent night. But get another vision of Christmas. It's Satan waiting to catch a baby and eat that baby, but God sovereignly protecting that baby so that he can be the savior of the world. Maybe think about that this Christmas morning. We actually have an illustration of this demonic evil at Christmas time back in Matthew 2. This is the passage Bennett read earlier in our service. But you'll remember, after the wise men head back east, they sort of short, take a shortcut and they don't go back to Herod. Herod's enraged, and he goes about killing all the two-year-old babies in Bethlehem. Realize that's not only the insane jealousy of Herod, but that's also Satan trying to get at baby Jesus and thwart the plan of God. Now, if you look at verse 5, it's interesting how relatively little is said here about Jesus' life and ministry. It just says he was born. It passes over all his miracles and teaching, death and resurrection completely, and it goes straight to when Jesus ascends back up to heaven. Now, that's not because Jesus' life and ministry are not important. Obviously, they are vital. And read the Gospels. We've got four of them to be convinced of that. But the reason why there's no mention here of any of Jesus' works is because the purpose of this passage is to emphasize Satan. Satan's evil mission and what Satan is trying to do to thwart the plan of God. We'll take a look at our final verse, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she is a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, obviously, this is a very highly debated verse, and I'd never make it a hill to die on. But in my opinion, the best interpretation takes this verse to refer to how the nation of Israel has been temporarily set aside during this church age. In this church age, God's focus is not primarily on the Hebrews, but on the church. This is, in Jesus' terminology, the times of the Gentiles. But as I read the Bible, that time's eventually going to come to an end, and God's going to graft the Jews back into the plan of God. The Jews will become the focus of what God is doing, but until that takes place, God's going to preserve the Jews and keep them safe all the way to the end of this age. But I, again, I recognize that that's highly debated, and I might be totally wrong in what I just told you. Well, this then is the meaning of this vision. Running in parallel with Israel's longing for a Messiah is Satan's attempt to kill that Messiah and to prevent God's plan of redemption from coming to pass. But God in his mercy protects the Messiah so that he can become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Now that that work is done, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, awaiting that day when he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. Let's talk lastly about how we should live in light of this vision. And how should we live here in Muncie, 2019, in light of this fantastic vision? And I've got four sort of areas of application for you to consider. First, let's think about how all that we've talked about this morning applies to reading the Old Testament. To reading the Old Testament. Now, if what we've seen is true, we need to look at the Old Testament not merely as a collection of interesting stories about the Hebrews, but as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan in continual conflict. Israel's looking for that Messiah. God's working to prepare the world for that Messiah. But Satan's there all the way along trying to prevent that Messiah from coming into the world. Again, I remind you, verse 2, I think, is sort of a brief summary of the entire Old Testament storyline. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. We need to learn to read the Old Testament that way. Now, this is obviously easier to do for some parts of the Bible than others. So let me give you a few sort of not-so-obvious illustrations. Think of the story of Cain and Abel. You know, they both bring sacrifices. Cain's not crazy that Abel's is accepted. Cain kills Abel. Realize that story is not just about how brothers ought to get along. No, Cain is an unbeliever. He's part of the seed of the woman, the kingdom of the devil. Abel is a man of faith, part of the kingdom of God, the seed of the woman. Satan knows that Jesus is going to come through the seed of the woman, through the kingdom of God, so he wants to stop that, so he inspires Cain to kill Abel, in part because he's trying to prevent Jesus from coming into the world. See what I'm saying? How about the flood in Noah's day? In Noah's day, nearly the entire human race had sided with Satan. The kingdom of God looked as if it had been almost completely wiped out, and if it had been completely wiped out, Messiah couldn't come. But what does God do? God raises up Noah, the only righteous man, and he protects him using a flood and the the ark, and you know the story. And through that, he makes sure that the kingdom of God continues so that the Messiah could come. We could keep going this way with literally every Old Testament story. Tower of Babel. The selection of Abraham, the Exodus, the Judges, King David, the exile into Babylon, the books of Daniel, Esther, Jonah, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan, the devil pursuing the woman, trying to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world so that he can't be our savior. Let me give you one last not-so-obvious illustration of this. Think about the book of Nehemiah. What's the book of Nehemiah about? It's about Nehemiah building the wall around Jerusalem and about how we need to build big church buildings, right? No, not at all. Here's how you got to think about Nehemiah. Why is it important for Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem? Just to remind you, Nehemiah's project, he's rebuilding the wall, he's reestablishing Jerusalem, sort of the worship center of the Jewish people. Why is that so important? It's important because about 500 years after Nehemiah, a particular guy is scheduled to die in Jerusalem, a guy named Jesus. If Jerusalem remains this sort of uninhabited dump, That can't happen. Satan doesn't want that to happen because he knows that Jesus is coming. So Satan's kind of working through Sambalad and Tobiah to thwart Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't necessarily know all of this, but God's at work there so that Jerusalem would exist, that it would be established so that 500 years later, Jesus could die for our sins. You see what I'm saying? Realize we've got to learn to read the entire Bible this way. Various skirmishes in this war between the dragon and the woman in labor until Jesus is born. 
that will be good not only for properly reading the Bible, but it will nourish your soul. Let me give you a second area of application to think about. Let's think about how we've, what we've talked about here this morning applies to making sense of world history. And what we've talked about this morning helps us make sense of world history. Now, what I mean here is that just like Satan was active all throughout the Old Testament trying to thwart the redemptive plan of God, that continued after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. All throughout human history, right up to the present day, Satan continues to wage war against God, trying to thwart his kingdom. And I believe it would be beneficial to your soul to learn to read history this way. I think we get a glimpse of that later in this same chapter. I mean, if you look at the, the rest of the chapter, after Jesus is caught up into heaven, Satan continues his work. Look at, for example, verse 17. The devil became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold of the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That's subsequent history after Jesus ascends to heaven. Now, there are literally millions of examples of this from, from history, far, far too many to talk about this morning. We could talk about how Constantine united church and state, 313 AD, and how that led to incredible corruption in the church. That was not just an accident. That was the kingdom of Satan trying to advance into the kingdom of God. We could talk about how in 732 AD, Charles Martel defeated the Muslims in Tours, France, preventing the Muslims from taking over Europe. Again, that was not just a fortunate happenstance that sort of set the stage for the later Reformation and whatnot. See that as an advance of the kingdom of God. We could talk about how in 588, the Spanish Armada was virtually invincible, but somehow the little British Navy, with the help of a peculiar storm, defeated the Spanish Armada so that England would be a Protestant country, and from England would come the Puritans and the Baptists and all that we talked about in Sunday school today. No accident but the hand of God. We could talk about the French and Indian War, which I think is probably the most underappreciated war in human history. Because the British won that war, the United States eventually became a predominantly Protestant nation. That set the stage for the Great Awakening, the modern missions movement, and a whole lot more. Again, not coincidences, but part of this massive battle between God and Satan. We could keep going. We could talk about the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the Civil War, the rise of communism, World War I, World War II, the sexual revolution, the fall of communism. You know, it's not as if Satan went to sleep after Jesus went to heaven. And it's not as if God ceased to work with the completion of the Bible. All throughout human history, right up to the present day, there's been this great invisible war between God and the devil behind the scenes. And again, it's good for your soul to learn to interpret history that way. Just to give you a brief taste of what I'm talking about, let me read you this quote from Reynolds Shower's rather fascinating book, What on Earth is God Doing? He writes this, With the fall of man, now there were two opposing kingdoms in existence, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Thus the stage was set for a fantastic conflict, the conflict of the ages. This conflict provides the key for, under, for unlocking the mystery of the ultimate purpose of history. And jumping forward a whole bunch of pages, he continues, As the 20th century progressed, Satan used one tragic situation after another to chip away more and more of man's belief in a personal God. The brutalities of modern warfare as displayed in World War I, the economic hardships of the Depression of the 20s and 30s, the systematic annihilation of six million Jews by the Nazis, the mass death and destruction of World War II, 
the threats of nuclear holocaust, the injustices of racism, the frustrating conflicts of Korea and Vietnam, and more examples of genocide progressively drove more and more of humanity to conclude that if there is a God, he has no relevance for the world or mankind. Satan's purpose for history is to make himself the only sovereign king of the universe by establishing his kingdom as the only permanent one. This he will continue to attempt to do almost to the end of this present world's history. And that word almost is pretty important. By the way, if you'd like to read a fascinating, fascinating little attempt to do what I'm suggesting here, check out that book I just quoted there, uh, What on Earth is God's God Doing? by Reynolds Showers, subtitled Satan's Conflict with God. Uh, this was one of my textbooks in church history, going back to college. Uh, the author, he was studying theology, world history, and church history, and started seeing all these correlations, and this was sort of the fruit of his work. Fascinating. You're not going to agree with all of it. Obviously, some of this is guesswork, uh, but if you want to read more on this topic, check that out. Now, if I could make one massive caution here. When we talk about interpreting history as God versus the devil, be extremely careful and tentative. Uh, you know, realize our history books are not inspired by God like the Bible is. Christians can and do make some embarrassing mistakes. Uh, you know, just to give you one instance of this, there were many Christians prior to World War II who literally thought Winston Churchill was the Antichrist. Uh, turned out they were wrong. So realize that you can make mistakes. And what's more, realize it's a lot easier to interpret history 500 years after the fact than when you're going through it. You know, hindsight always is 2020. So be extremely slow, especially with contemporaries, to judge this or that person possessed by the devil or an agent of Satan. You know, be very slow with that. That being said, there are plenty of examples that are patently obvious. You know, just think of the Reformation here on Reformation Sunday. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that that was a work of the Spirit of God. So let's learn to look at world history this way, the kingdom of God in conflict with the kingdom of the devil. Again, that's not only the proper way to look at history, but I believe it's good for your soul. Quickly, a third area of application. Let's talk about how what we've seen today applies to how we interact with non-Christians. How what we've talked about this morning applies to how we interact with non-Christians. Now, in the last couple of decades, there's no doubt that our world has become increasingly anti-Christian, anti-gospel, pagan. See evidence of this? I mean, I, I'm not talking necessarily even from a Christian perspective. You don't need to be a Christian to agree that there's been a massive rejection of biblical values, biblical ethics, an embracing of immorality and lawlessness. But here's the question I want you to think about. Ultimately, who are we fighting against? Ultimately, who is our enemy? And here's a hint. It's not other people. We are not fighting against our neighbor, but against the prince of the power of the air. Ultimately, our neighbor is, or no, our enemy, ultimately our enemy is not Democrat, Republican, or Independent, but this great red dragon with the seven heads and ten horns. And remembering that can utterly transform the way that you interact with non-Christian people. You see, when you see non-Christians not as demons in disguise, but as precious souls created in the image of God who's been, who have been deceived by Satan, that will fill you with compassion and pity for your fellow man, even when you totally disagree with their views. Even when you totally think their views are dangerous, you realize there's a lot deeper things going on here that they don't fully understand. And my, view, my, my role is not to hate them, but to love them and to have pity on them. I believe this is the very 
approach Titus 3 recommends. Listen to Titus 3, and notice how in this passage we're encouraged to look at non-Christians. Titus writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Led astray by whom? By the devil. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was you and me. We too were once deceived by the devil. But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You see, when we remember that we too were once deceived by the dragon, believing the lies of the dragon and that the dragon is our ultimate enemy, that will move us not to hate our fellow Americans, but to have pity on them, compassion on them, to approach them not with violence and animosity, but as simply one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. What's more, when we remember that our ultimate enemy isn't other people but Satan, that will remind us that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we'll end up emphasizing prayer more than political action, sharing the gospel more than winning arguments, acts of love more than passing legislation, though truth be told, some legislation is very appropriate and helpful. Please, brothers and sisters, especially members of this congregation, let's pray for one another that we would remember that Satan is our ultimate enemy, not our neighbors. For again, that will move us to love, compassion, pity for the people who have been deceived by the dragon. Let me give you one final application this morning. It's with this it will close up. But this one pertains to all who are not Christians. All of you who have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus and been united to him. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, you've not put your hope in the Lord Jesus, we are delighted you're here. You're always welcome to gather with us on a Sunday morning. In fact, there's nowhere we'd rather you be 1045 on a Sunday morning than here with us singing God's praises, hearing God's word. But if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, you might be wondering, where do you fit in this vision? You know, how do I relate to the woman and the child and the dragon about to devour the child? Where do I fit in here? Let me put it this way. If you have not yet turned from your sins and embraced the Lord Jesus, you belong to that dragon. That hideous red dragon with the ten heads, that is your master. You're in his kingdom doing his will. And unless you flee out of his kingdom and take refuge in the kingdom of Jesus, your fate will be the same fate as the dragon's fate. What will eventually happen to the dragon, you ask? Well, listen to Revelation 28. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Realize if you die in Satan's kingdom... And realize by default, all of us are born in Satan's kingdom, already citizens of the kingdom of the devil. But realize that if you die in that kingdom, Satan's fate will be your own. You too will be cast into the lake of fire and sulfur, where you'll be tormented forever and ever. And while you might not believe that this morning, on that day you will believe that. And yet here's the good news. Here's the good news. God, our creator, loves those who have been deceived by the devil. God, our creator, loves those who have rebelled against him. And he took the initiative to be reconciled to the very people who broke his laws. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to earth. The Jesus we've talked about so much already today. 
He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he's perfect God, perfect man in one person, Jesus. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God as Heavenly Father, never breaking any of his laws. But then when he was in his mid-30s, Jesus died on the cross. And realize, when Jesus died on the cross, he was enduring the judgment of God in our place. The very wrath of God, judgment of God, curse of God, I deserve for believing the lies of the devil, fell on Jesus on the cross in my place. And not only for me, but for all who would ever believe on Jesus. Three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus back from the dead to demonstrate that what I'm telling you today is true. And it's now in response to this gospel, this message, that God is calling you. Flee from the kingdom of the devil, come into the kingdom of God. Turn from your sins, embrace the Lord Jesus, be saved, be delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. So right now, I beg you, flee from the kingdom of the dragon. You're in that kingdom now, probably feeling some of the misery of that. A day is coming when Jesus will deal with the dragon, and if you're still connected to him, still in his kingdom, you're going to go right with the dragon to the lake of fire. So flee from that kingdom this morning. Embrace Jesus. Rely on his death. Rely on his resurrection and enter the kingdom of God. As always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said this morning, would like to become a Christian today, please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But one more time, flee from the kingdom of the devil. Immediately. I mean, if you really believed you were in the kingdom of this hideous red dragon, would you stay 30 seconds longer? Flee from that and be welcomed into the kingdom of light. Do that today. Let's close in prayer. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And just for the insight that it gives us into looking at life. It makes sense of why there's evil and why there's pain, why there's suffering and, and why this evil seems so intelligent. It makes sense. Thank you for your word. We do thank you for the victory that Jesus secured at the cross. He has crushed the devil, disarmed the devil. And we know that one day he will come to finish the work and to cast the devil into hell forever. Lord, give us faith in these realities and help us to live every day in light of these realities. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.